0: On Second Shot, we cover two new stories every week to find out what kind of wisdom the world is dishing out today. And at the heart of every one of these stories are people just like you and me who've had to overcome incredible odds, to face the greatest challenges, to struggle and fight back. But now, we're changing it up. In these episodes, we're skipping the headlines and going straight to the people that inspire us to grow, be bold, seek change, and act courageously when the rest of the world may not. A second look, a second chance, a second shot. This is Second Shot Sit Downs with your host, Jenny Anchondo. Hello, hello everybody, it's Jenny Anchondo here and we are doing a second shot sit down and I'm telling you we are committed to just getting people from all walks of life, from different backgrounds and different experiences. And today's story is unlike one we have ever shared before. We're doing a second shot sit down with Ann Grady, who is a best-selling author. She's a two-time TEDx speaker. She also calls herself a resilience expert. I tell you, what, I'm curious to find out what does that mean? Because she really does have quite the story to tell about her own health journey and dealing with uh, mental health with her child as well. So let's welcome in Ann Grady. Hi, Anne. Hi, Jenny, so great to see you. You too, okay, so what's a resilience expert, tell us.
1: Well, so my life necessitated resilience, and as a speaker and a consultant and trainer, I was able to research and learn so much about the brain and the background. So in addition to living this experience for the last 18 years with my son, Evan, I've also really dug into the research and have learned... Uh, that resilience is nothing more than a set of skills and habits that you can cultivate and practice and hone, so that you have them in times like these. It's nothing more than a muscle that you can build.
0: I think we're all we're all building a little bit of it right now, aren't we? So I'm excited to hear from Ann what that actually looks like and, and some practical tips. But let's take it back, Ann. Where did where did you grow up? Tell us about your childhood and upbringing.
1: So I'm originally from the East Coast, moved to Corpus Christi, Texas in the fourth grade, Uh, graduated high school, went to college, got a master's degree, started in corporate America, Um, and then I had my son, Evan, and that really began my road to resilience. Um, I knew something wasn't right when I was pregnant. Evan, I had a very difficult pregnancy. At the age of three years old, Evan tried to kill me with a pair of scissors. Uh, and by the time he was four years old, he was on his first antipsychotic. So my motherhood journey was very different than I had anticipated. Uh, I was My husband left when Evan was 18 months old. So I was a single mom trying to navigate a new consulting career, trying to figure out what was wrong because none of the doctors could tell me Um uh, but was fortunate to remarry, have a beautiful daughter. And um, when Evan was seven years old, was hospitalized in the pediatric psych unit of Children's Medical Center right there in Dallas. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I lived at the Ronald McDonald house for two months while he underwent inpatient psychiatric treatment.
0: Oh my gosh. Okay, Anne, I've got, we went through a lot right there. I wanna hear, (sighs) Evan's dad left when he was 18 months old and then A year and a half later, he tries to kill you with a pair of, what what, what did that look like? What had been going on? I'm sure that wasn't the first instance you saw from a very, very young toddler that there was something going on with him.
1: Well, literally, I mean, he would kick so hard when I was pregnant with him that I would drop to the ground. My doctor joked he'd be a soccer player. And when he was born, the nurse came into the room and said, sweetie, I've been doing this for 30 years. And in all that time, I have never met a baby this angry. Which is always what a first-time mom wants oh, to gosh, hear. My gosh, Ann! He just cried constantly. He was very colicky. Um, he began getting aggressive at about three months, and by the time he was eleven months, he was in therapy, trying to figure out what was wrong. And you know, the doctors kept saying, "If you were more, uh, if you were more consistent, or if you were a better disciplinarian, or you wouldn't <clears throat> pick up his sippy cup when he threw it off the high chair, then maybe he'd be better." And so. I began to not only question myself as a parent, Mm -hmm. but as just a a person. Nothing that I did seemed to work, and and it was just exhausting.
0: I'm sure you did all the things. There's everything from like baby led weaning to baby wise to sleep training to cry it out. I'm sure you did all the things, Um, and they're hard to do even with a child who's not dealing with what it sounds like presented as an anger issue and developed into much more
1: right and you know as we have learned evans now 17 years old and we've learned since that he does have a severe mood disorder but he also has autism he's got um basically his brain isn't functioning like it should be so his executive functioning skills his ability to regulate emotion doesn't work very well and you throw on some cognitive delays and disabilities and you just have a perfect neurological storm. Basically, you say up, he says down. You say right, he says left. You say take a shower and he says I'm going to kill you and he means it. And Evan is an amazingly wonderful human and I love him more than I ever thought I could love another person. But it definitely tests your ability to keep waking up and trying again when nothing seems to work.
0: How is he doing today, and does he and, and does he mind me asking now that he's no, nearing no, he, an he, adult stage?
1: What's great about Evan is that ever since he was little, he asked me to share his story. Mm. So people ask me all the time, "How does he feel about you sharing it in your TED talk? How does he share feel about you sharing it in your books?" Um, and he has asked me. He said, "You know, mom, if I can help one person know that they're not alone, if if we can use this story to help one person." know that it's going to be okay, then I want to do that. And that's probably my proudest accomplishment. He, About two years ago, we made a gut-wrenching decision. We placed him at a therapeutic boarding school in Idaho. Um, We just weren't safe. He wasn't safe. And as he's finishing up his senior year now, we are looking at assisted living facilities. Um, It's just not safe for him to come back home for for any of us and so it's been gut-wrenching it really has
0: and and what does he understand about that experience or about that does he does does he uh process i'm not safe to be around my family right now
1: he is (laughs) sort of. So his ability to have like intellectual conversations and to regulate and to understand those things happens but it's sporadic. So he can't consistently understand it. So for example, we had a therapy session on Friday where he said, "Mom, I really I get it and I think I could use some help and while I really want to be at home, I also know it's probably not the best idea. So thank you for looking for great places for me." But we talked last night and called me an idiot and a jerk and all the other stuff. You know, it's just one of those things where, depending on the day and, and where he is, but one thing never changes. He is loving and empathetic and really wants to make a difference in the world, and that's really become... I talk about this idea of a lighthouse in my book, really aiming for something bigger than yourself to keep you going in the right direction. And this is our lighthouse. Evan really wants to make a difference. Um, Mental health in Texas especially is not great. And so we really, truly want to make an impact in the world.
0: So he understands at at certain points, he understands. I want to know from, I guess, this resilience aspect, um, you know, not all moms and dads have dealt with or will ever deal with what you're speaking about, but there are those little moments that I think all parents experience where it's just like daggers from their children. How how do you deal with that? Because, you know, we all have these visions and these maybe illusions of having this perfect uh, parent-child relationship and it just isn't always the case.
1: Well, you say daggers, right? And in our case, it's real. Yeah. Um, and and I would say some days better than others, right? This. The idea of resilience is not that you have it or you don't. It's not like skinny thighs or a genetic gift. It's something that you cultivate and practice. And so it has been hard, you know, it's a long-term grieving process. And when you finally get to a place where you're starting to accept it, you might go through denial and anger and frustration and hurt all over again. So it really is a daily journey. Um, But I have been really blessed to be able to find strategies that not only help you in the day-to-day grind, but also just make you stronger and more resilient for all the things that are going to happen. Now is the perfect example of a time when we all need resilience. Mental health, we are in crisis. Um, And so it's, it's, One of those things where you take it day by day, some days are better than others, but the skills that I talk about are things that anybody can implement and nobody gets it perfect.
0: Let's do that. Let's talk about some of those skills and what we can implement. Again, we're we're all sort of on a spectrum of dealing with either it's resiliency with our families or the things that are happening in the world. So what are Mm -hmm. the tactical things we can do day in, day out to build up that resilience?
1: Well, in the book I outline three things, a resilient mindset, skill set, and the ability to reset. So a mindset is literally the story that you tell yourself about what you're experiencing. It's called your explanatory style. And what we don't realize is that our brain is not, uh, its job is not to keep us happy or content or calm. Our brain's only job is to keep us safe. And so in order to do that, it's always scanning the environment for threats. Unfortunately, your brain doesn't know the difference between a tiger charging you or a snarky email from your boss. It registers all threats equally. And uncertainty is a threat. Your brain would rather have an outcome that it doesn't like than one that it doesn't know. So part of your mindset is literally the story you are telling yourself. I spent a lot of time having a pity party. What was me, it's not fair. You know, and, and while those things might be true, they're not serving me. So the mindset is really critical because your thoughts and emotions are not facts. And we take them as such. So really, literally, the story you tell yourself, whether you're sitting around going, this is horrible, whether it's politics or COVID or jobs or family, if you're having these conversations where you're repeatedly complaining about it, your brain believes that you are in danger. And so it produces stress hormones and those create inflammation and all kinds of health problems so the mindset is really the foundation the skill set are literally skills like self-care we tend to think of self-care as a dirty word but there are lots of self-care practices that take five minutes or less what
0: do you do what's your self-care and you're a busy mom and entrepreneur and ceo what's self-care look like for you
1: Uh, Several things. So I swim. That's my self-care exercise, exercise rivals antidepressants uh, and their ability to help treat depression and anxiety. I snuggle with my dogs that releases oxytocin. I connect with friends and family. I recently got a travel trailer so that we could start our own mini adventures on the weekends (laughs) rather than waiting for the world to change. But mindfulness, um, and that's why mindfulness is really the basis for this book because it's one of those things, I'm a very achievement-oriented person, and people kept saying, you should practice mindfulness. And in my head, I, I thought, I really don't want to sit in a full lotus <laughs> position. And eat no doesn't food. have time for that, people. I don't have time to find my <laughs> zen. What are you talking about? But that's not what mindfulness is at all. It's just It's paying attention on purpose. It's training your brain to observe how you're thinking without getting carried away by it.
0: Uh, um, yes.
1: I will never yeah. forget
0: the first time I heard about mindfulness was I worked as a, a trainer and a coach at Miraval Resorts in Arizona. They're now in Texas, which is so cool. Yes. And And um, was working at like a two-year point on that high achievement level where it's go, go, go. Oh, and I'm no. like, wait a minute. So we're going to waste guests space by sending them <laughs> on a walk, not teaching them a thing, but only to observe. And um, after going through the training, it was so anti just standard issue Jenny like so anti and it be, and it was just everything that I needed. And every time I try to get into that, it's still like a little creaky. Um, but, yep. but just such a, so impactful and, and really worth the effort and the time. So, uh, so you practice mindfulness. What, what else is a
1: part of your self care package? Well, it's really taking time instead of focusing on what will reduce stress it's really taking time to proactively cultivate positive emotions because we all, our brain has this negativity bias. It's looking for what's wrong instead of what's right. And when we say things like I need to reduce stress, Uh we're still focused on stress. So I try to create opportunities to find joy, and that's practicing gratitude. It's humor, listening to comedians, or you know, having a great time. We went camping with our friends this weekend and just laughed as hard as we could. So it's cultivating these positive emotions so we can train our brain to start finding more of them. It's getting clear on your priorities, right? We're fantastic at prioritizing our schedules. We stink at scheduling our priorities. So track your time for a week. Is it reflective of what you say is most important to you? I make sure I put in these safety valve so that each day I'm focusing on more than just work and getting things done, but creating positive emotions and joy.
0: Oh, that's good. That it's is awkward. it's hard <laughs> but it's good. Um, it you, you also mentioned something at the beginning that I didn't want to just kind of jump over or, or dismiss. you talked about the fact that after you went through this difficult time um, with your son and and being a sim- single mom and how scary that must have been even even without dealing with you know even with a child that didn't present any anger issues or or need therapy at such a young age, then how did you go on to then find a new relationship and um, find love and companionship again after that?
1: Well, I got very lucky. Uh, My friends, so I, my husband left, like I said, when Evan was 18 months old and when Evan was about five, my friends dared me to join an online dating service and much to my, you know, fighting and and saying this is not what I want. I did, and and so I met my husband. He was my second date, and I basically said, "Look, here's the deal. I've got this um, special needs child. I don't know what's wrong yet. We don't have a diagnosis, but it's it's certainly." Difficult and challenging and I don't have time to waste. So knowing that if you want to go on a date, great. If not, I totally understand <laughs> the hard feelings. And it was, it, we hit it off immediately and, you know, we, we struggled. Do we blend our families? So it took us a couple of years to have the kids move in with each other and get to know each other. And um, it, you know, it's it, blended families are hard enough. Mm-hmm. Add to that a child who has autism and mental health challenges, and it makes it more difficult. That's why such a huge percentage of parents of chi- children with special needs end up in divorce
0: mm-hmm. because
1: it's it's exhausting. It's relentless.
0: Did you so? And then he came. He came with children.
1: So, yes, my husband, Jay, has a daughter who is a year older than Evan, so she's now 18 years old, um, but she was six at the time and, and that we met, and so I've gotten to raise her as, as my own and, and love her. She spends half her time with us, half her time with her mom, and, and it's been a great opportunity to um, explore what child rearing is like mm-hmm. when you have a different set of circumstances.
0: Were you ever concerned about her safety when you blended the family? Um, and I ask this because if so, this is a pretty unique situation, but I don't know that there's a lot of people out there talking about this. So if somebody's dealing with this, I would love for them to hear how you navigated that, the blending of the family, considering what your son was dealing with.
1: So you would think it is a unique situation, but the challenge is it's not. It's so much more widespread than you would imagine, but nobody talks about it because yeah. there is incredible guilt and shame and embarrassment tied up in all of this. Um, So of course we were concerned for Riley. Now fortunately Evan never um, took out his aggression on peers or on anyone that didn't try to restrain him. So anytime he was aggressive it was because you were trying to stop him from doing something that could hurt himself or hurt other people. With Riley he was always incredibly gentle and when we did have Aggressive episodes in the house where something would get thrown or a wall would get punched. We made sure she wasn't around for that. And and then when it got to the point where we were concerned, that was when we hospitalized him for the first time. Um, and, and so it, it's one of those situations where I think siblings get um, lost sometimes. We had to make a concerted effort to make sure that he wasn't taking all of the energy out of the room, whether it's negative or positive and really dedicate time to Riley, but we were also fortunate in that she was with her mom half the time. Mm -hmm. So it was not like she was in this environment 24 seven.
0: So you went through that and then you ended up dealing with him in in the best way you knew how, did you ever feel like people looked at you and blamed you?
1: all the time all the time my my pediatrician i'll never forget this evan was five years old and he was in the pediatrician's office and he was flicking on the light switch on and off on and off and i said buddy you got to stop it and he threatened to kill me and the pediatrician, and how old is he five five and the pediatrician said see you let your son talk to you like that <gasps> that's the issue and i said no i'm telling you something's not right um, and he didn't believe me. I had teachers telling me, well, if you were just more consistent at home, daycare providers who asked us not to return, classroom uh, principals who said that he needed to just be expelled. You know, And so constantly as a parent, when you don't know what's wrong and people are challenging your parenting when you don't have anything to compare it to, it's a very lonely Scary, sad place to be, and I, I spent a lot of time there.
0: That's the exact thing. As you were as you were describing all of this, all I could think about was lonely. Um, yeah, because it's just uh, to your point earlier. You know, you said Jenny, this isn't as unique as you'd think, but people don't talk about it, and it can feel lonely. I mean, even even with with people who have regular challenges, we have a three year old, and sometimes I think, do I ask the other moms about this? Because yeah. do they just not deal with like? Does their child just not do this? Is this not acceptable? Do I not tell the public she does this? You know, it's a very, uh, it can be isolating and lonely regardless, much less having a pediatrician say that to you. So that was, you know, when Ann and I were talking about this episode and um, I was like, gosh, she's got a couple of second shots because first of all, this, you know, dealing with Evan and then second of all, you had a major, major health scare. Talk about how how you discovered the tumor and and what the storyline is with that.
1: So Evan was hospitalized again in 2014. I had to go fly to Iowa to give a keynote speech. I speak all over the world to to organizations and schools and government agencies. And I was, my flight was delayed by three hours. I was miserable. I had a horrible migraine. So I got a massage and I, I, like one of the chair massage places, my head is in the cradle. I lose my mind. I start to cry. The massage therapist said, you know what? When you get home, here's my card. Let me come to your house and give you a, a massage, 90 minutes. My treat, so note to self, if you're ever in the Austin airport, Jenny, um, ask for Becky, cry uncontrollably. She's fantastic. Oh my gosh, amazing, what a good, <laughs> a good soul Becky is. Yeah, she found the tumor. Um, she found she thought it was a lymph node, it was a tumor. It ended up being the size of a small avocado. Um, it resulted in facial paralysis, so I couldn't close my eye, I drooled, I had a speech impediment. Two days after the surgery, a speck of dust scratched my cornea, So the doctor said, you know, Anne, we have to implant a gold weight into your upper eyelid. We have to stitch up your bottom eyelid and we have to do that before you start six weeks of radiation. So the weekend before my eye surgery, uh, we went away for the weekend, you know, since we'd been lucky, we planned on Vegas. And it was our first morning there. We're walking down the stairs towards Caesars Palace and I had no depth perception and I proceeded to fall down a flight of stairs, breaking my foot in four places. So I started radiation two weeks later with a boot on my foot, a patch on my eye. It was quite the, quite the resilience building breeding ground.
0: Wow. Okay. So then here's the thing I think you've done, you've done obviously a lot of work on yourself. You're speaking, you're motivating people and stuff. Was there ever a point where you thought, well, this stuff doesn't work because here I am falling down the stairs.
1: What's interesting is I never used to speak on resilience, so my background, my master's degree is in organizational communication, so I I was doing leadership development with clients all over the world, and it wasn't until all of these things happened, I, I spoke at conferences sharing Evan's story, not to be uplifting, but because I was desperate for help and nobody could tell me what was wrong, and so I speak to hundreds of thousands of people every year, and I just started sharing what was happening so that they could maybe give me an answer and help me understand. Um, And so it was then that I started really figuring out that there were some things I was doing that were helping my resilience, and there were things that I was doing that were completely undermining it, and I didn't even realize it. So, you know, I used all of the skills that I have learned and that I teach to get through the tumor, to get through that part of it and to really keep perspective. That doesn't mean I did it perfectly or, or didn't have horrible moments, but these skills do work and, and I feel so passionate about them because they're simple things that are so easy to dismiss, um, but they're so, so important and impactful.
0: You talk about resetting your nervous system. Um, Mm -hmm. part of why I wanted to interview you too, is because I thought, well, you know, selfishly, I want to be the most resilient. But sometimes when you're somebody who thinks I want to be this and this and this, it's like your nervous system is just shot for it's, it's like they, they work against each other in a way. It seems like when you're trying to be high achieving, but then you're also dealing with, okay, I'm trying to be calm and not have my nervous system out of control. So how do we do that reset?
1: Well, one thing I would say, you know, and I'm very goal-oriented, type A as type A gets, but one of the things that this has taught me is that your resume and your eulogy shouldn't be the same thing. (laughs) Yes! Nobody's going to stand over your grave going, Jenny worked 80 hours a week. She was all over the place. But the simplest way to reset is three deep breaths, and most of us breathing correctly. So if you hold one hand on your chest and one hand on your stomach, and you just breathe normally... What you find is that when we are stressed, we breathe from our chest. We take short, shallow breaths. There's a technique called diaphragmatic breathing. It's used by athletes. It's used by opera singers. And it's counterintuitive. But on the inhale, what you want to do is pretend like there is a balloon in your belly filling with air. So on the inhale, you pooch your belly out, something all of us women are taught not right. to do. But on the inhale, you pooch your belly out. On the exhale, you imagine there's a weight at the end of your exhale because the exhale is the part of the breath that re-regulates your nervous system. So when you take the deep inhale your belly comes out you hold it for a couple of seconds and bring it back in and I use an activity called take five and so basically I trace my hand and this is great for kids it helps them regulate before school it helps them really re-regulate their nervous system. It helps you do it. So you just take deep inhale as you're tracing up your finger. Okay. Hold it. Exhale.
0: Try it you guys at home. Pooch out your belly.
1: Hold it. Pretend there's a weight. Bringing your exhale lower.
0: Okay. We're tracing every finger. onto the ring finger.
1: Now, the first time I did this, I was lightheaded. (laughs) And the reason for that is that your brain is not used to getting enough oxygen. A deeply relaxed person takes seven breaths a minute and three of those deep breaths will reset your nervous system. So you can do it at any time, going for a five minute walk in nature, will reset your nervous system. Thinking about things you're grateful for. You know, when your brain is thinking about things you're grateful for, it knows it's not being chased by a tiger. Mm. So laughter, same thing. Laughter, if you can find ways to laugh, your brain doesn't even know the difference between a real laugh and a forced laugh. It generates the same brain activity as 2000 chocolate bars. So resetting is simply a matter of perspective. It's a matter of priorities, but it's as simple as breathing yet we are so caught up, so busy being busy, that sometimes we dismiss some of these simple techniques.
0: Those are great. You know, what's interesting, I don't know if you know this, but that's a common voice coaching technique for broadcasters as well as the deep breath. Um, they'll always teach us, and I, I did this just because coming up through news, it was always this criticism of your voice, is, this is never going to work, your voice is terrible. So I did a lot of uh, learning and coaching on this, and they teach you about those deep breaths, kind of like, don't worry about what it looks like, but it's right. it's restorative and just gives you more strength in your voice and more confidence, more resonance. So I guess I've been inadvertently doing that one all along, but there I love, I love this turkey. I'm going to try that with Brighton and see what, <laughs>
1: That's so nice. yeah. So, yeah. So you, what is this? And I'm like, you know, the turkey where you put your hand yes. and then you put your other hand and then you trace it. It's the same, it's the same thing, but it's super quick, super simple, and really, really powerful because your brain needs more oxygen. And when we are stressed, it doesn't get it.
0: And I would love for everybody to hear about your book, hear how they can get it. Um, Your story is just remarkable. So please, please share that with everybody.
1: Well, the book is called Mind Over Moment, Harness the Power of Resilience, basically taking time in the moment to think about your thoughts and your behavior so that you can reroute that fight or flight way of thinking and take back control of your life. Uh, and so there's a journal as well, and the journal was a happy accident. A special education teacher heard one of my speeches and illustrated and storyboarded out my entire keynote speech. And I loved it so much, I asked her to illustrate the journal. So you can oh. go to my website, which is Uh The books are available there. They're available on Amazon, uh, and you can also text the number 22454, chat the word strength, and you'll get a resilient self-assessment, some free resources, a self-care sheet, and the ability to become part of our community and get a weekly reset.
0: And I'm so glad that we are connected. Thank you for being so candid, uh, both about your healthcare, about your son's journey, and, and about how you've uh, been able to find some grace for yourself through all of this. Thank you.
1: Well, thank you for having me jenny and i think if more people talk about it we reduce the shame we reduce the stigma and we start making change so thank you for having me to talk about such an important topic i
0: totally agree thanks ann i hope you guys enjoyed this um gosh we've been trying to again like i said cover some different topics that People aren't always bold enough to talk about topics that we think are important for you to hear about, so please let us know what you're thinking. You can email us, secondshotcast at gmail.com. And a reminder, we do air the TV version of all of these Thursdays on CW33. If you know someone who has had a remarkable second shot in their life, who has a story that, gosh, the world needs to hear about, again, email us, secondshotcast at gmail.com, and we will talk to you soon.